Welcome everyone to the podcast. This is the last episode of the firm analyst this year. And I'm extremely excited because we we have a guest today. His name is Wahid Kalungi, and we're going to be going through some of the main events this year. And without further ado, Wahid, just tell us a bit more about yourself. It's going to be a very, very relaxed one hour or so, I'm thinking. And I hope you'll enjoy the, the episode to some of the listeners. So Wahid, uh, off to you. Tell us a bit about yourself, uh, what you're up to. He's He's been around the city, guys. That's <laughs> what I'm going to tell you. He's been around the city. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Wahid Kalungi, as Adnan has so kindly um, introduced um, me. I'm currently a contracts paralegal at a American company called User Testing. Like Adnan said, I've been around the city. Um, so a bit of background, I did a degree in philosophy and politics <coughs> at the University of York. And it was around my final year where I decided that I was interested in a career in commercial law through going to a range of open days, talking to like trainee lawyers and um, kind of um, associates and qualified lawyers. And from my final year, uh, where I graduated in 2021, I've spent time building legal experience started off a small law firm that specialised in criminal law, family law, immigration and wills and eventually I worked my way towards getting a um, experience placement at two legal tech companies before doing a stint at Norton Rose as a document review paralegal and eventually doing um, um, an, uh, an internship at Sims and Simmons before my current role right now. So that's just a bit of background. Oh, perfect. Uh, Thank you so much for that intro, Wahid. And I think the reason why I chose you to come on the podcast, I think, is obviously we've, we've, we've met before. We've spoken a bit about these issues. And I think this year has been particularly just, it's been a sporadic year. Let's just put it that way. There's been things that are happening and, you know, there's been market changes there's a there are deals that are falling through and there's just a lot so let's let's perhaps just start off with today i mean we have a very interesting situation where after 14 consecutive interest rate hikes from the bank of england we now have the markets pricing in a 50% chance of there being rate cuts in March. So, so what are your, your general thoughts on, on what's happening right now? Um, what do you think you know, this is going to mean for, for the markets at whole? And also, just, just for the record as well, for those who have been listening to AJ Bell and Shares, uh, Stocks and Shares, I highly recommend it's a good podcast. They've been talking about you know, stocks rallying, and uh, usually when announcements like this happen, there's correlations, especially when you're hearing that, oh, well, interest rates are going to drop you're going to start seeing some of those share prices starting to rise. So so let's hear from you, Wahid. I mean, what, what do you think about what's happening? Did you expect this and uh, what's happening to the markets? I would say it's quite interesting because when we've looked at how the markets have performed the last 12 months, you know, we've seen central banks like the Bank of England and, um, and also the Federal Reserve increasingly hike interest rates in order to combat inflation, which has been sparked a lot by a number of factors such as geopolitical war, a rise in oil prices. So it's quite interesting to see that the markets come down, especially after COVID and 
especially after um, companies have now started to um, utilize their spending power. So I'd say it's kind of, it was kind of expected because there's only so much interest rate hikes you can do before it really affects the economy. Mm. We've seen in Turkey, for example, that inflation rates are quite high and also I think in Argentina. Yeah. Um, and it can be quite detrimental because like, the price of food, bread, can end up becoming more expensive for the average citizen or civilian. So yeah. it was kind of expected. It's good to see that. I think it's quite good to see that at least the, the banks um, and kind of governments are doing their best to ensure that there is some sort of stability. Yeah, and <clears throat> I think it's when you look at what's happened in the last year, I think it's very important. I think throughout this podcast, we will we'll begin to discuss the true effect of hiking interest rates. So I remember really when I was when I was starting the firm analyst, just reading the stories and looking at two main markets that were absolutely reeling from these interest rate hikes. So you have the the M and A market where you have just deals going down in terms of volume like the volume of deals was reducing quite significantly and at the same time if you look at real estate prices in the uk we had massive decreases and this was actually i think prices were falling at the fastest rate that we've seen in a very long time so i think that um now that we're hearing this news of an interest rate I mean, possible interest rate cuts in 2024, I think it would be really interesting to see what happens to these markets. But I will tell people, just because, for example, we see that these numbers are, for example, that they're, they're looking promising. And, for example, we're seeing core inflation at, I think it's just about 5.1%, uh, just below yeah. the 5.6% the mark. Just to remind people, the goal of the central bank is to get inflation down to 2%. That's core inflation down to 2%. So mm. we're still quite away from that particular goal. But given the fact that the UK economy is beginning to shrink, I think that, I mean, what we might see, as you know, Andrew Bailey was saying, and we've seen several central bank governors say the same thing, we're possibly looking at this higher for longer sort of phase. So it, just because interest rates might be cut it doesn't mean that they're going back to near zero during you know the covid period where mm. the economy was quite frankly decimated you know i agree and it's definitely going to take a, a while even if you do see interest rate cuts for that to feed down into the the loans that we're seeing so for example <coughs> you have these commercial banks they have reserve accounts with the bank of england if they're going to lower the rate of interest that they're giving to those banks maybe they might prefer to lend it out because they're going to make a, a healthier margin and obviously that's going to take a while before that happens but yeah so we're not going to take any more time on the current we're going to do a full review mm. of some of the main stories in the year yeah. um, and we're going to be covering covering areas like competition banking finance regulation and MA slash pe so i, I hope you're all excited and uh, <laughs> Uh, I know Wahid, you're very excited for that M&A segment. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, let's get right into it. Um, I'll see you in the next segment of this podcast. Yeah, so, 
Yeah, go for, go for it, bro. <laughs> so in this segment of the podcast, we'll be talking about um, some trends we've seen in banking and finance over the last 12 months. So we'll start off with kind of the rise in private credit trends. Then we move on to talking about um, some of the bank collapses that have happened in the last 12 months, such as Silicon Valley Bank collapse, as well as um, UBS acquiring Credit Suisse. And then we'll move on to talk about um, some other elements of um, these trends and impacts on the economy and businesses. Yeah, awesome. That sounds exciting, uh, Wahid. And I think as, as a, a bit of a finance geek myself, it was a very packed year. I mean, I think I was speaking to <clears throat> a couple of banking and finance associates at Freed's when I was doing my internship. And they were just talking to me about how, you know, interest rate swaps were getting progress- progressively more expensive mm. throughout the year. And for those who don't know about, you know, what interest rate swaps are, it's effectively a way for borrowers to hedge their risk against interest rates by paying fixed amounts to the swap counterparty. Mm. And for example, let's say you, you got a, a loan and your starting rate was 5% as an example. You get into a, uh, a bit of an agreement with a counterparty to essentially top you up when the interest rate increases. And obviously, if it decreases, you have to, you know, pay a certain fee to them. But it's obviously, it's netted off. So that's usually how it works. But this is essentially, obviously, if you can hedge your risk against interest rates going up, mm-hmm. the counterparties, because they're more likely to actually be paying you an amount. Yeah they're going to often charge higher fees. And that's basically what, you know, I was hearing throughout these particular, um, you know, times. And also just regarding insolvencies as well. Like we began to see that corporate insolvencies in the EU, the EU have actually increased quite significantly. I was reading that in the FT just the other day. Yeah. And in the UK, certain industries have been hit really hard, like construction, you know, yeah. the, the yeah. margins are razor thin. Yeah. I think at one point construction this year was accounting for almost 20% mm. of the un- insolvencies that were happening in the UK. So, I mean, just reflecting on, on this particular year, like what have your, your thoughts been? Yeah, so actually speaking of the aspect of insolvency, I've seen even Thames Water have been struggling with financing yeah. regarding um, managing their debt. And that's, again, a big part of that has been, I guess, struggling with <clears throat> managing priorities. And yeah. I think told the government that they were receiving um, an equity boost of 500 million return has yeah. been I think 510 million I think pounds worth of debt yeah equity and from like, just looking at the market because of obviously the average company struggling with managing their finances private credit has been a good solution as mm. a way to go about giving themselves more time and to negotiate certain loan agreements. Yeah. And actually that led me to looking into a deal whereby a fintech firm, Finastra, um, in the US, received a record $4.8 billion um, worth of loans. Um, I think it's believed to be the biggest private credit deal in the US yeah. as of now. And um, this will give kind of Finastra, I guess the financial capacity to, to yeah. kind of work on some of the projects that they're aiming to do. So yeah. I know that um, I know that um, 
this refinancing will help them with raising um, finance in the US and European um, leverage loan markets. Yeah, I think it's it's the, the Finastra deal for me just epitomizes um, how interest rates have really impacted these particular markets, specifically PE. So for a lot of people, you know, we talk about private credit. Private credit as it stands, generally speaking, is is something that's growing or it's come from these PE markets. So we're looking at a, a refinancing here, which is quite significant. So Finastra is essentially a UK fintech. They're based in the UK, but they are, I believe, in the, is it Vista Equity Partners yes, portfolio? So they're owned by... Yeah, Vista Equity Partners. Yeah. yeah, Vista Equity Partners. Yeah. So we essentially have Vista as as this owner. Yeah. And it was a very um, dire situation for the firm because for those who might be unaware, in this world of loans, loans very rarely get paid back because, you know, you have to have capital. Yes. And by paid back, I don't mean people just default on them. People refinance. So, for example, if you're borrowing hundred million pounds today and the maturity of that particular loan is seven years as an example when that seven-year mark comes around you you're not really going to just have a hundred million in cash to pay off yeah. to the banks so what usually happens is you get into a loan and this is literally what keeps the finance industry running, running. Yeah. I mean it's and actually you know there's a lot of talk of what's called the big refinancing, uh, I think it's the refinancing wall or the refinancing barrier. And it's essentially people saying that, well, there's a lot of loans that were entered into or bonds that, that are now becoming due. Mm. So what that means is that a lot of these banks or lenders are going to have the opportunity to refinance a lot of these loans. Because if you don't, that's when you have to start getting into debt restructuring talks. So for Finastra, they basically, uh, they, were, they had a lot of their debts coming due. And what was very uh, particular about this case was that th- there was some hesitancy on behalf of the investment directors at Vista about, you know, do we want to add more equity to this particular company? They wanted to get a refinancing, but this was on the condition that Vista actually injected more equity. So they, they ended up taking a, a leveraged loan out. I think it was about $1 billion from Goldman Sachs and a syndicate. Mm. And they put that in as preferred equity into Finastra and that's that was essentially the turning point for the deal and it deleveraged uh, the company slightly or just enough so that this private credit loan package should uh, could be um, essentially organized for Finastra so this is exactly how private equity is dealing with higher interest rates back in the day and I say back in the day because it seems like forever since interest rates were <laughs> near zero <laughs> you know you could just you could possibly just refinance and yeah. i mean now you're refinancing and you're possibly refinancing at a higher rate yeah so this is why this is where private credit came in you're finding all kinds of funky types of clauses in there saying things that oh instead of paying interest you can pay interest in kind so for example with with equity in the mm-hmm. company or for example you can even delay paying interest and you could pay it off at a, at a different time so i mean what were your what were your takeaways from this particular deal and if you do know, like, who was advising, like, you know, the parties, like, what, what was so special about this particular deal? 
I think what made it still quite interesting was the fact that it was a combination of debt. So it was a uni tranche worth mm. $1.8 billion. It was a blend of senior subordinated debt as well as a $500 million revolver facility, yeah. which made it, like you said, kind of more complex, more technical. And it, it essentially showing that in the financial market there's always room for being inno- uh, innovative. I remember before we started talking, you'd mentioned that lawyers essentially are architects. Yeah. And one change, for example, in the conditions precedents, which are kind of some of the clauses you'd set for a party to do before a deal is completed, one change in one of those clauses can change the entire framework of the deal. Yeah. So um, I'm not quite sure what parties were involved in advising um, um, Finastra, but I'm, yeah. I'm aware that it's quite a, a, a unique deal. And we have started to see a lot more flexible deals that got yeah. elements of interesting kind facility yeah um concepts in in in, in a way that um essentially finance banking and finance lawyers are becoming more creative in how they advise their clients yeah and actually i think i mean i'm trying to remember myself it might have just been kirkland i think on i think kirkland might have been advising vista i'm not sure and Davis Polk might have been advising the syndicate. But I think what this illustrates is a lot of the firms advising on these deals are largely, in quotes, US firms. Um, but a lot of them are also op- operating in the UK. So that tells you that, I mean, if you're applying to a US law firm that specializes in area of finance, so I'm talking Latham, I'm talking Kirkland, I'm talking, I mean, when they do offer trading contracts, and we'll get to them in a moment, Paul Weiss. Uh, and you know, Davis spoke a lot of these firms, Will Gottschall as well, tier one. Yeah. Um is that yeah, so Kirkland yeah, yeah. so Kirkland was they it? they advised Finastra. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And I mean this was a massive, massive deal. So I mean, um and we'll get into this in a moment, but we can see why finance lawyers right now, especially private credit specialists, are becoming more and more popular in the markets. So I think that's just something to think about. Um and I mean, in terms of this particular deal, like what what else have we seen in the markets about private credit that's that's really beginning to show that it's it's starting to to grow? Um, I think from what I've seen, um, PE firms struggling or not struggling or being more cautious with buying certain companies because of the fear that. <clears throat> they might not get returns as quickly mm. has opened the door to look into private credit yeah um i'm trying to think of a deal that kind of reflects this there's one that doesn't come to mind but when one does come to mind i'll yeah mention. i think it's some it's, it's a more general thing as well i mean i think even if we were to go to I mean, even if we, if we want, we can do it live on air <laughs> and possibly see. Like, let's go to um, practical law. Do you have access access to practical law? Um, and no, I don't. Ah, okay. Uh, university. Oh no. Okay. Yeah. No. Oh uh, gosh, practical law, guys. By the way, this is the absolute plug. If you go to practical law, uh, this is Thomson Reuters. If you have access to West Law, you have access to practical law. Just go to what's market, right? And you should be able to see some of the public M&A deals that are happening, but even just without even having to look, I know, for example, that DWF, the the debt financing package was provided by 
an alternative investment company. So there was a syndicate that in, that was led by an, a direct lender. So this is it's quite it's quite significant. I mean, in in terms of like. You know, you're looking at these M and A public M and A markets changing. Even Blackstone, yes. Let, let us actually look look at this deal. I think there's a very recent one. Thompson Reuters right? closes twenty billion deal with Blackstone Capital. Ah, yeah. So they're selling financial and risk division. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, but a lot of this is being, it's it's being financed by private parties now. So I mean, let's let's actually now look at the reasoning for for private private credit. So you've already mentioned the the problem, yeah. and this is the thing about business. If there's a problem, there's always a solution. Yeah. That's the thing about these things. So if you look at, for example, what these PE companies are dealing with, what are they dealing with fundamentally? It's higher rates, we can't pay our investors, investors returns, and we can't use as much leverage as we used to. That's a problem. What problem are investors having? Because remember, guys, you have the entire investment industry where there's investments and investors. So... If you have a lack of investors, you also have a lack of investments, yeah. right? And if you have a wave of investors, you can finance a wave of investments. Exactly. So this is, this is basically how the entire fund ecosystem works. Yeah. So what had happened is higher rates. What does this automatically make you think of? Like, if you're putting your money in the bank, for example, mm. or let's just say I'm a random person, yeah? Um, and a random investor in today's world, if you if you had to choose between the chance to get a return by buying a share or a virtually guaranteed return by investing into, for example, investment grade debt, what are you going to choose? It would depend on the the intention of the investor. If they wanna, if they feel like the share is worth more than the debt, they'll invest mm. in the share. But if they, exactly. If they feel like they can get a higher value in return from the debt. They would give or they would lend to the business with the hope that they will receive exactly. a higher, higher return. Exactly. So I think that's where you find if you really believe in a company's health, financial health, you'd mm-hmm. go for it. So maybe a company like Apple, I think, wasn't doing too bad this year. Yes. Yeah. That's true. Even but Microsoft. Microsoft, yeah, 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 as well. Largely, I think, to do with also the AI. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to that some of that stuff later as well. Mm. But if, for example, you're investing in mid-cap companies, you're not really going to gamble on their financial health. Like, as we've seen, corporate insolvency is going up. So generally speaking, when you have higher debt or higher interest rates, rather, in the markets, the share prices tend to be depressed. That's true. So that means that people feel safer putting their money in, especially in the US, into treasury bonds. And these are bonds issued by the government. Yeah. But obviously this year we saw <laughs> some mayhem. I think the, the US's credit outlook was was, um, was reduced or it was essentially there was a bit of a warning put on by, by Moody's and a couple of other credit rating yeah. agencies talking about how the, the debt ceiling, you know, Congress had to essentially authorize for more debt to be taken on. Yeah. So this debt ceiling just kept being pushed, almost pushed, yeah. Yeah, essentially, by, by Congress. And that became a problem. So people started looking to other alternatives. Banks at the same time in the U.S., and we're going to get to this with SBB, uh, SBB in the moment, mm. banks were simply not tracking the interest rates in terms of their savings accounts. And the same thing happened in the UK. The FCA had to bring all of these banks in and have a discussion with them about, oh, let's actually look at why you're not raising your 
uh, deposit rates. So it was a very difficult situation, especially for banks. And people just decided, I'm going to put my money into bonds. Yeah. I'm going to put my money into debt. And that is essentially what is underlying PE from the investor side. Like, well, what else do you think has been like causing this rise of PC? <clears throat> oh, I think we've probably covered most of kind of the causes. Um, probably one more, I'd say, you could say competition element. Mm. The one for businesses to innovate and attract clients. So mm. if, if you're showing that, for example, if you're a law firm, essentially you make your money from advising on deals. And yeah. typically the bigger the deals you advise on, the more market relevant the deals you advise on, the more the easier it is for you to attract certain clients. So um, another reason for rising kind of private credit deals, more, we'll sp- since we're in my firm, Alice, speak more on the lawyer side, would be a, a way to attract new clients and return yeah. current clients to show that you're able to kind of work on market relevant deals and see firms like Kirkland and Ellis have done a great job in ensuring that they put themselves at the forefront. Yeah, essentially. And <clears throat> that's that's a very, very key point. I think it's it's a point of innovation. And I think what investors really liked about this was that you're giving better returns than <laughs> PE now. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely insane. But now P- PE funds are actually yielding lower returns compared to private credit funds. So that's, it's quite, quite important to remember. And then the last point that just came to mind is capital requirements. So if loans get riskier, banks essentially have to put aside more capital, including things like, for example, you either get more shareholder investment or you, get, you, you retain your earnings as opposed to paying dividends or you issue 81 bonds that can be easily written off in the... In a, in a stress event, so essentially reducing your exposure, so you're still able to pay out deposits. Or, for example, in the US, you can get treasury bonds on your balance sheet, and that, that's something that you have to essentially do for every single deal that you're getting into. And the riskier the loan, the more capital you need to put up, yeah. i.e. it's more expensive. Yeah. So now, private credit funds don't have to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> They can just delay and they gratify. Can... Delayed gratification. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they just go for it. I mean, yeah. and this is why some regulators are really concerned about it. But that's one of the, the key things that's actually like made private credit so competitive yeah. to the point whereby they have these things called the, the dual track process yeah. where you have banks and private credit funds competing to borrow to certain parties. It's, it's, it's really quite interesting to see how this phenomenon has gone. But I think we've definitely talked about this topic a lot and we've, we've, we've briefly touched on capital. Mm. This is actually very related to the next story, which is SVB. Yeah. So why don't you take us through SVB? What happened? Why, why did this bank, along with several other mid-sized banks in the U.S., collapse this at the beginning of this year? Yeah, so essentially Silicon Valley Bank was a bank that catered mainly to tech startups to help them with having finance in order to kind of build out, you know, their tech arms and um, um, you could say prospects. And essentially, at one point, um, Silicon Valley Bank had $200 billion worth in assets, but had gone bankrupt as a result of the continuous hike in interest rates caused by the Federal Reserve. And it's crazy because Silicon Valley Bank deposits um, at one point 
in 2017 were 44 billion dollars um and by by 2021 their debt had risen to i think 189 billion dollars and it essentially the bank struggled to manage its debt ultimately leading to the collapse um of of, of the bank and actually this had a ripple effect on mm. the market so we'd seen i think signature bank collapse yeah couple of days after and i think they're also kind of they they're small not small but by their bank that's special like they were they were based in new york yeah 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 so there's a couple of mid-sized banks that i think it even got to the point i can't remember which bank it was yeah but you had a, a range of massive banks like bny mellon jp morgan they they deposited i think up to 25 billion dollars with this yeah. particular mid-sized bank yeah and it still collapsed and you know, what was crazy about because at the time I was working at a legal tech company that had accounts at Silicon Valley Bank. Oh, t- t- actually, tell us about that. I really want to. <laughs> what What was that like? You know, it was interesting because I, I remember talking to the CEO at the time, and I was aware. I think he was in California at the time it happened. Oh, so when it come back, I remember speaking to him saying, "Oh, by the way, did you manage to move our deposits in time?" And he's like, "Thankfully, I did, but it was quite stressful because oh, he'd said." He'd woken up and he's just seeing WhatsApp messages pinging regarding Silicon Valley could be in danger. Oh my and gosh. normally when there's like a bank run, companies want to move their money as quickly as possible because only there's a certain amount of money that could be insured or protected. Yeah. And that run on the bank, I think it was from Thursday until the weekend, had yeah. led to the eventual collapse. So it was it was kind of interesting seeing how that affected like a business from the inside because company i'm talking about they kind of they specialize in providing um kind of legal tech services for um wills and probate mm. for your everyday individual yeah so just seeing the importance of kind of having a diverse range of banks shows you that money is not always safe in the bank yeah that's something i learned <clears throat> particularly around that time because yeah February. yeah i think i mean that's a it's very interesting to get insight from someone who's you know by been in the thick of it, just yeah. like, you know, wondering that, you know, you've spoken to someone who was directly impacted by that. So that's very powerful because I can tell you that there's a lot of businesses and, and some people might not know this. You might have, you might be very solvent from a balance sheet perspective. You may have the assets to pay off all of your debts. Yeah. The issue is you have cash flow issues. Yeah. So now imagine you have worked your entire life and you have a good two million pounds sitting in Silicon Valley Bank, whether that's the, the US branch or the UK branch. Yeah. In the UK, I think it's only seventy five or eighty five thousand pounds of that is what you can claim from the financial services compensation scheme. So. Let's actually briefly just check that. But that, isn't that shocking? And and that that's why, for example, you have the Basel Accords in place, and you have this um yeah so that for the fdic it's two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the uk i believe it's around seventy five thousand dollars eighty five thousand eighty five thousand pounds sorry eighty five thousand pounds so essentially i mean that that, that is not a lot of money that's not a lot of money as well that's probably less than one percent yeah i mean it's 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 quite a lot in terms of um you would have to imagine if you have you know, rent bills. Some of these rent bills, the rent that you're paying for a certain building 
it'll be in the thousands of pounds, sometimes even tens of thousands of pounds if you're renting out an entire office space. So that must have been absolutely tragic for a lot of businesses, you know? Yeah. So I think that, I mean, this was, it was a massive story and it actually resulted in contagion. So this, this also, funnily enough, it explains why a lot of American um, depositors, they didn't have faith in the banking system anymore, especially the mid-level banks. And the key thing about mid-level banks is that they didn't have the same capital requirements as the larger banks, which are, in quote, systemically important banks. Yes. Yeah. So what happened in SVB's case, uh, from what I recall, they essentially had treasury bonds on their balance sheet. But what was happening? Interest rates were going up. And for those who don't know, bonds tend to be fixed rate instruments. So as an investor, if an interest rate is going up and you've bought bonds that are yielding, not yielding, but let's say the uh, this bond is paying 5%, right? If the interest rate goes up to 7%, let's face it, a lot of bonds are going to be paying in excess of 7%. And because the 7% in this case would be the base rate. So that means you're, you're earning less money, which means that that bond that you're holding is less valuable. Mm. So this is exactly what happened to Silicon, Silicon Valley Bank. Mm. And they hadn't properly hedged their interest rate risk, meaning mm. that these bonds that they held, I think there was, there was a multi-million dollar unrealized loss on their balance sheet. Yeah. Which is, it's absolutely insane that this was able to happen. So when that came out, there was no discussion about, oh my God, I don't feel like my, my, money, my money is safe in the bank. And that's the worst thing, guys. Let me tell you, the markets, 90% of the market is psychology. If people are scared yeah. to put their money in banks, yeah. that's when you start seeing people pulling out their money. This is exactly why we have capital requirements. And this is exactly why markets fluctuate. Because I think when I was starting out with understanding how commercial works, I didn't understand why there was always cycles. Mm. And then you realize a big part, the, the more you get into the business side, the, the big part you realize is that there's a lot of um, psychology involved in business. You know, yeah. the reason why there's um, bull markets is because there's confidence. And I think mm. we're starting to see that in in kind of at this stage in, in 2023. Yeah. That's why there's a lot of movements between partners at certain firms because they're gearing up for a bull market. Yeah. I mean, and this is why, and, oh gosh, I keep saying we'll get into this, but do you see how these stories are linked? Yeah. Like, this year, this is why I think we've begun to see firms that previously hadn't had a UK presence in terms of practicing English and large law, mm. now beginning to step into the market. And I won't make any spoilers, but we'll, we'll talk about that mm. a, a bit later. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, now, uh, let's actually discuss, uh, while we still have time, you wanted to touch on the UBS? the UBS story just very briefly because I think a lot of people think that this was more or less the same thing as SVB, yeah. but there, it is quite different in the sense that, I mean, Credit Suisse it had more or less to do with the way first of all there were several scandals, yep. including the Twinner yep. Bond scandal, Archegos Capital, and I'll briefly explain that particular scandal and mm. what happened in that particular. Scandal. It was not just Credit Suisse, by the way, that was involved in that transaction. Yeah. But it was very complex, and a lot of banks lost a lot of money. Mm. Um, so we'll get into that a bit. But let's get a bit of an, uh, a larger picture from this and, and some of the litigation that mm. came out of this. So off to you, Wahid. Um, so in, in terms of kind of the reason why Credit Suisse eventually kind of fell through or say collapsed was because they had 
a lot of 81 bonds, which are, I think, on the bond spectrum, they're the most the, the most riskiest type of bonds a bank can have. Yeah, I think they're some of the most riskiest. Yeah, it depends on, obviously, the terms. But generally speaking, 81 bonds, it's in the fine print. Yeah. In the sense that, well, if there's a certain event that happens, yeah. we reserve the right to write down these bonds to zero. Exactly. <laughs> So that's, guys, read the fine print. <laughs> that's what I'm going to say. Exactly. Read those terms and conditions. Yeah. <laughs> that's something I've learned a lot in my paralegal. It's really important to uh, read those terms and conditions before you proceed. And actually, that led to a lot of investors kind of pushing for litigation because they felt that um, essentially their value was wiped out. Yeah. And um, I think considering kind of um, I think considering the fact that they lost value in their bonds they, they felt like you know they had they needed I think considering how considering that UBS had bought um, credit Suisse for 2.6 billion pounds which were roughly around 3.2 billion dollars the argument is that UBS has the money to at least compensate us. Mm. And I'm sure there would mm. have been clauses in the contracts that allow for um for for those for those investors who had those eighty one eighty one bonds to be compensated for. Yeah. Because I think we were talking earlier, um I think I remember mentioning to you that part of my role is to review and kind of help with drafting certain limited liability clauses. Yeah. With some of the corporates that we that we work for. Yeah, and there is always like an exception to every rule, so like I think you'd mentioned earlier, I think on the pod that for every problem there is always a solution. So I'm I'm showing these. Uh, I'm not sh- I'm not sure what part of the proceedings that I'm not sure what part of the proceedings that some of these investors are with 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 UBS and Credit Suisse, but I'm sure that they are essentially trying to finalize some sort of compensation or compromise or else it's yeah. Because I think the main issue is that, you know, 81 bonds, the, the idea is that, okay, well, they, they're supposed to absorb losses, but in, in the event of <clears throat> a payout, for example, they're saying that they were prejudiced compared to the shareholders because the shareholders received some value, albeit, let's say, possibly at a discount. Yeah. That means that they, the, the bondholders literally walked away with zero. <laughs> which is abysmal considering how considering that UBS and Credit Suisse were are the t- at the time were the two biggest banks in Switzerland yeah. and that the Swiss regulators were involved I don't think so yeah people I mean it, it was a really interesting thing because people were saying that well this was essentially brought together by the Swiss regulator I, I think there's even proceedings against the Swiss regulator because of this particular decision so it's, I mean, guys, this is, it's really, it's a lot. And uh, if you know about Queen Emmanuel, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, I don't think you can trade at Queen Emmanuel. They don't, I don't think they offer training contracts. But my goodness, if, if you are on the other side and mm. there's a Queen Emmanuel on the other side. <laughs> Roll up your sleeves. Yeah, so Queen Emmanuel, this is one of those cases that Queen Emmanuel is taking. And like, the thing about Queen Emmanuel is that they're taking on especially this year, as a litigation firm, I think that they're possibly looking at, I would think, maybe even incre- increased revenues, mm. right? 
Yeah, so Palace Partners is another litigation boutique. So I think they they essentially they, they were suing the the Swiss regulators. Yeah. yeah. So they're suing the Swiss regulators, and um, it's 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 just a lot that's going on right now. So even as I mentioned, Queen Emmanuel, yeah. they've also taken on that London Metal Exchange case that I was telling uh, that I was talking about last week, and that is it's an it's a crazy case, but it also shows you like you yeah. know, the specialism of of these particular firms. Yeah. So. I mean, the London Metal Exchange, that's, again, judicial review against a public body, which is the London Metal Exchange mm. and LME Clear. And then on the other hand, you have um, these 81 bonds and you have Queen Emmanuel uh, helping these particular bondholders. Mm. And again, this is another thing about bonds, just so we can reflect on the legal structure of these bonds. It was the litigator that had to come and, um, I mean, Queen Emmanuel was the one that opened up their doors and said, hey... If you're a bondholder, we're having meetings. So this is this is all about client acquisition, by the way. Yeah. I mean, if if you're looking for clients at a time like this, I think that was a really smart move by by Quinn Emmanuel Very because smart. they they basically, I mean, in a lot of these situations, keep in mind if there's no trustee representing the bond bondholders, mm. it can be very tricky. Very. Because the trustee is usually the one responsible for bringing proceedings against a defaulting bondholder, or let's say we have a dispute. <clears throat> But if you have individual bondholders, mm. when you have so many diverse people in terms of like they're in different countries and stuff, yeah. it's going to be very difficult to mount a litigation case against mm. this particular defaulting uh, borrower mm. or just if you have a dispute. So, again, this is important to think from a client acquisition perspective. And also just add on to what you're saying regarding Queen Emmanuel being quite smart and um, decided to represent bondholders. It shows you that as a lawyer, it's very important to understand the commercial market yeah. in which your clients and potential clients operate in. So yeah. Queen Emmanuel saw an opportunity <coughs> to advise Credit Suisse bondholders, considering the fact that a lot of the bondholders were, were based all over the world, and the fact that um, they specialize in litigation. So mm. by them putting their name forward, because I've not seen any other firm representing... I think it's Palace Partners. Yeah, Palace, I believe, as well. On, yeah, but even, pal- even they're on, a boutique. Palace, yeah. yeah. And they're also a boutique as well. So yeah. strategically positioning themselves to assist on this type of litigation case, again, kind of blossoms their name Yeah. In, in kind of complex litigation deals within finance. Yeah. Um, and kind of gives them the opportunity to, in the future, when something like this does happen again, say, well, we have to create a Swiss. Mm. And even if they don't win, um, yeah. the cases that, that they've done their best to represent, rather than Credit Suisse kind of being left yeah. on its own to yeah. figure out kind of the complex complexities yeah. of legislation. I think, I mean, that's why we, we do podcasts like this, because, I mean, let me be very honest with you. When I started doing a bit of reflection this year, there was a partner, first of all, at Freeze that I met. He does private client work. And he was telling me that, well, I asked him, how do you acquire clients? And he said that most of the clients that I have are friends that, you know, I have a client, I did good work for them. Then they tell their friend about me and I get a call from someone and it's like, oh, how did you know me? It's, oh, my friend told me about you and you do good work. So that's the thing about being a lawyer. The best place, and I tell people this, the best place that you can occupy in the mind of a client as a lawyer, it's the back of their mind. Mm-hmm. The whole point is you might not get business from them now, yeah. but the whole point is that when you go to these networking events, even as a trainee, right, mm-hmm. 
if you're looking to get into a firm or whatever, the best position that you can occupy is at the back of someone's mind. Because one year down the line, when that person has a need, mm. they'll pick up a phone and say, actually, guys, you know what? I know this guy, he's called Wahid, mm. and he's doing commercial, you mm. know? So I think maybe he can help us out. Yeah. And then you automatically get that instruction. You're quite, so, you're yeah. quite right in terms of that. Because even when I was at Simmons, when I was talking to a few partners um, regarding few partners, especially in, in, in financial service regulation, when I was talking to them about how they go about acquiring and advising some of these big institutions, it's mainly because, like you said, one, they've done good work for them before, or two, word of mouth. Mm. That The fact that they've done such a good job that they've informed their friends or informed their clients or their network. And usually, when time of crisis comes along, they'll ask for support so like essentially doing doing a good doing a good job on on advising and also um being competent and obviously considerate does go a long way in the legal field which is something we don't really talk yeah um when you're in university just told work hard good grades (laughs) extracurricular (laughs) bro that that hit me like a buzz when i graduated (laughs) from my llb i i genuinely thought you know okay as long as i get my first class uh i'm gonna go to the best firms and that's gonna be it's gonna be so easy yeah one vac scheme you know that's it and like you know one application it got to the point where i was so deluded because obviously like i've come from an international student background i don't know what the system is like exactly so i i went in thinking i I applied to two big (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be very honest about this mm. I applied to I think it was two or three vacation schemes and I was thinking to myself oh, okay you know I really want to be able to save up and everything so this one Whiten Case pays 500 <laughs> <laughs> and this other one pays 400 for the week cool let me apply for both of them get both vacation schemes <laughs> and then I have 900 pounds worth of save. like guys this is the level of delusion that I was operating with yeah. until I finally had my wake up call uh, at uh, I think this was just after I, I graduated uh, from my LLB, yeah. or as I was beginning to graduate. So this is my, my in my final year. Mm. But yeah, I mean we've discussed finance now. Um, I think we're gonna go to probably M and A. And or M and A, we'll focus more on the PE side because that's quite linked to what we've just been talking about: interest rates, etc. Then we're gonna go to some competition as well from there. We're going to finish off on the law firm stuff. This podcast will be a bit long, so I might split into parts. But the whole point of this particular part of the podcast is for those who have managed to get assessment centers, guys, this is for you specifically. So congratulations if you have. Uh, To those still applying as well, this will just help you. If you do get, for example, a spring vacation scheme assessment center, or you get a TC assessment center coming up within the next three, four months. It's good to just know what's been happening for the past year. I, I awesome. agree. I agree.